How was IO? Because that was your first IO, right? Yeah, man. Uh, IO was awesome. It's better than Dub Dub. Really? Really? Yeah, so I have to preface that with they obviously spend a lot more money on it in an attempt to make it better than Dub Dub. So yeah. you can take from that what you will. Like, they try harder. Yeah, I guess they do. Like, they try harder because they're, it's, I guess it's like Google I.O. is where Dub Dub was 10 years ago, five years ago, how many years ago? Well, I.O. is just as hard to get a ticket to, so I don't think so. Okay. They have the, they brought in the lottery first, actually. Right. So it's weird that they try harder, thinking about it that way. But yeah, they definitely, I reckon they spend on a per day cost because Dub Dub's five days and I.O. is two days, but I reckon they spend. At a guess, three times as much money per day. Right. That's interesting. Did you hear the um, episode that Rusty and I did last week about about the differences between IO and and Dub? No. Um, so my internet here sucks. I went to listen to it and it wouldn't play. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, it's um. I actually thought it was really good. We talked a lot about the differences in not only the conferences, but what they kind of mean about the developer kind of communities and the companies in general which was really cool i thought it was good all right i'll listen because googlers are much more friendly for sure yeah i think we were pretty fair about the whole thing like i don't think either google or apple came out of that conversation better i think it was just a matter of they're different and they're different in certain ways that where apple are better and ways that google are better so yeah yeah one thing that i did find i don't know if you want to use this for the show or not but I almost felt like I was watching, I wouldn't say I've watched the same keynote twice, but the IO keynote, at least the Android section, felt like a lot of iOS features. And now the iOS 9 feels like a whole pile of Android features. Mm. So they just kind of traded places this year. Yeah, well, we'll get into the, I think we'll get into the Apple keynote after I do the spiel. But um, yeah, the Apple keynote was very different this year. And I don't just mean like the fact that it was, it felt different just sitting on my couch and watching it. It was a lot different to last year's in many ways. So it was, yeah, it was interesting. Are you still awake, Jake? No, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> you sound sick. Like you sound like so tired that you're sick. I am sick. Are you actually sick? Yeah, I'm sick. I've got like some sort of cold flu thing. Oh, dear. I have a theory that Jake is going to be patient zero for the dub dub plague. Yeah, the con- like he's <laughs> brought the plague and now everyone's going to catch it. Yeah. So. <coughs> oh God. <laughs> he put that on. I haven't heard that once. This is a thing that happens not just at like conferences like dub dub, but it happens at things like um, comic conventions and stuff. Yeah. There is actually a term for it. It's con crud, and it's basically mm. it's basically any sickness that you get from. Uh, fr- from a convention or a, oh, I guess a conference. I brought I brought mine with me. Yeah, good work. I'm glad I'm not there. I mean, someone has to bring it. Yeah, mm. I think my immune system was down because I was so like working ridiculous hours to try and get everything done in order to be able to come. Yeah. So like last week, I was just wiped out. Oh well, good for you. You you brought something that everybody can take home from WWDC. Mm. Mm. My yeah. little gift. Hi, and uh, welcome to Mobile Couch. This is a show where we talk about Apple Music. It's three things. No, wait, hang on. I've just, I've just looked at my notes, and apparently we talk about developing for mobile devices. I don't know. Anyway, this show is hosted by Jake McMullen. Hi. Wow, you sound sick. And Ben <laughs> Pregrove. Hello. 
I'm not sick. And myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly. And uh, this is episode number 50... 59. And it's also uh, supported by our Patreon patrons, who are awesome. And thank you very much. Thank you. So, Dub Dub keynote. Let's let's talk about, about a little bit about the keynote. Just very little bit. How do you guys feel about this morning's keynote? I'm throwing it out there. Worst keynote I've ever seen. There was a very long line. Well, the long line is not particularly abnormal. But yeah, I kind of agree with you, Ben. I think it was kind of one of the their worst keynotes. I felt like it was not very focused. I had no idea what happened. Like everything about it felt different. They started with that video, which they've never done before. And I actually thought the video was pretty good at the time, but like that could have been cut. It's just like it was so different. And then they had the completely out of place talk from Drake. What the hell was that? Cut that too. He was so nervous as well. Like it was really weird how nervous he was about talking to all these developers. Yeah. It was just, I don't know what happened. Maybe I heard some people saying that it got messed up because they had to lose the Apple TV. And so it ruined all their planning but still i I feel like the first part of the keynote was actually not so bad as the second part and the way that the way that i'm dividing that up is obviously apple music which kind of came out of nowhere i mean it didn't come out of nowhere but it, it just kind of it felt forced and it felt like they were tacking it on to the end of this keynote because uh because they don't want to have another event just for it later on I just, yeah, it was it was not great, and it was especially that part was so so unfocused and just handing things around to all these different people who all said almost exactly the same thing, you know, in various accents and uh, verbiage. Verbiage is that a word? It is now. And while the first part of it had a lot of um, new stuff that we were very excited to kind of hear about, which we'll talk about, you know, as as the show goes on. The second part, like nobody, it wasn't about anything to do with developer stuff. It was about consumer, you know, a new consumer thing that developers don't have any, you know, any need to hear about. So I think you guys have been um, ruined a little bit by last year's keynote. Like, I completely agree with your analysis. I just think that I've been coming to expect over the few last few years that Apple uses the WWDC keynote as an opportunity to talk to everyone not just developers. So yeah. I don't think that it's really pitched, been pitched at developers for the longest time. And I think last year was an anomaly. Last year, they actually had so much content for developers that some of it actually did come in through in the keynote. But in kind of the last five years or so, it's really been about, you know, here's our opportunity to get some global media attention and we're going to use this to talk to the world as a whole about the stuff we want to tell them. Well, sure, but the thing is that last year they said one of the things that they actually did say was that they are going to be making the developer conference and the keynote in general more about developers. I, I mean, I could go back and look up the exact quote, but it was basically saying that, you know, we want to focus more on developers with the dub-dub stuff. And last year they did a really good job of that, but that's partially they because did. most of the stuff that they did was software last year, or yep. rather software things like, you know, OS ten and uh, iOS 8, uh, you know, new stuff that was, you know, quite substantial and then Swift, obviously, that, you know, kind of um, came out of nowhere and surprised us all. This year, they've kind of gone back on that, and they started out really well. Like, they started out talking about all the software updates that they had and all the new stuff that they were putting out, all the new kind of announcements that they had, and then they just kind of swerved. It was it was really weird, and it's not like we kind of expected it. 
in previous years, they've done things like they've announced hardware at Dub at Dub Dub at the, during the keynote. They've announced laptops and stuff like that, and that usually comes first. This year, it was it, it got tacked on to the end, and yeah. maybe it's like Ben said, where it was uh, it was a matter of um, you know they pulled the Apple TV at the last minute, and so they had you know all this time to fill. But it just it was it was weird, and it was just it felt forced. I think is the is the thing, and it felt really unApple like because it was just a lot of people kind of reiterating the same points over and over again. Yeah, and you know what else? It didn't fit Dub Dub at all because it was like it goes from we love developers to algorithms suck. You can never do an algorithm to do this, and it's like you're talking at a developer conference. This yeah. doesn't fit at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I didn't feel like it was it was it fit at all, and yeah. We mean, I mean, we should probably move on, but yeah, that, that was kind of my feeling about the keynote. Yeah, I'm sure everyone will tear it apart. So Before we move on from the keynote, though, um, something I did want to mention was I noticed there was greater diversity this year compared to last. We saw some women on stage, which I think is a first in an Apple keynote uh, for at least some time. And not only that, they were they were VPs. Like, they weren't just women that they brought on stage, you know, out of out of nowhere. They were people in the same vein of the people who are normally on the keynote but they would they just so happened to be women and whether or not that was forced or not it it wasn't brought attention to at all it just happened that way yeah yeah i think it was it, it was, was genuine diversity not sort of tokenistic or anything yeah but i think i i remember we discussed this this time last year and i kind of you know was trying to had my eyes open to it this year to see if if the if it was any different and it was a little bit which is good and the other thing before we move on from the keynote just a small very small thing maybe like 3 frames 0 0.5 seconds it's uh, officially 10 frames 10 frames, 10 frames. has been counted <laughs> you've counted them <laughs> i saw quick math in the in the video in the one of the videos that they uh, they showed that was cool that was awesome it was so cool <laughs> it like made my year i don't know it just like popped up and then disappeared but i was just like oh Quick math! Ah! And it was also one of the ones that I wrote the whole thing for before I left. It wasn't one of the new ones, so I was just even more excited. Nice. So cool. I feel like it might be the same feeling that I got when I went and I watched the uh, the video that Google released for the Google Design Awards last week that had the um, Silver Screen Queens artwork in it, um, which is oh, oh, nice. my wife's podcast uh, because, you know, Pocket Casts won a design award and so one of the art pieces of artwork that ended up in the capture for that was, uh, was Silver Screen Queens, which was super cool. And if you haven't heard Silver Screen Queens people, then you should go and uh, and check it out because it's essentially a sister podcast of ours. Both of those things are pretty awesome. You guys are making little dents in the, the global culture. Yeah, it's good. It's yeah. awesome. So let's talk about mobile development because there is a lot of stuff. Even though it doesn't feel like there was a lot of necessarily a lot of stuff uh, that got announced in the keynote and for people who watched the keynote but didn't watch the State of the Union, and I don't know why you would do that, but you missed out on a lot of stuff because a lot of stuff wasn't mentioned in the keynote and then it was mentioned later on or it's been posted on the websites. Um, but there was a lot of new stuff in there and I think we can kind of uh, – I think we can just we break out break out some of the new stuff and uh, and talk about that and talk about some of the, the announcements that kind of came through as part of that and, yeah. I'm actually, like, pleasantly surprised at how much noteworthy stuff – there has been announced. So after that keynote, even prior to the keynote, my expectations were pretty low. Like last year, we were spoiled with a whole heap of new stuff. And surely kind of I thought this year, 
they weren't going to be able to repeat it. We were going to get incremental improvements, updates on the existing status quo and nothing substantially different. And I don't think that's what we've got. I think we have got a whole heap of actual meaningful improvements um, and it's exciting. So one of the things that we kind of saw coming or that was rumored at least in uh, in previously was um, the ability to extend the search. So essentially a search API. Uh, and that's something that we got with iOS 9 or we're getting with iOS 9. So it basically means that what you can do is you can search through your app's content with uh, the spotlight search for lack of a better word because that's they seem to be kind of removing that term it's just being called search but if you're searching from the home screen as an example and i have gif wrapped set up to have your gif library as part of that uh, you'll get those gifs as part of that search results which is super cool it basically means that you can have a bunch of uh, search results that show up you know, for content that's actually on your device as opposed to just the app. And am I right in assuming that it doesn't have to be limited to content that's on your device, that it's content that an app on your device knows about? Yeah. So, okay, I've had a look into it and how it works. So I'll I'll kind of explain it to you a little bit. So for starters, what you can do is you can have in your app, you can actually have extensions that allow you to index the content that you have. So if you have an app that provides podcasts as an example uh, and you have you want people to be able to search for the episodes you get a couple of extension points which allow you to essentially open up your app in the background and uh, index the content there yep. the other thing that uh, comes as part of that is so do you guys remember a few maybe a month or two ago when every the kind of internet went a little bit nuts about the fact that there was um, the, that Apple announced their search bot yes I do remember mm-hmm. that Apple was you know taking on Google they're going to have their own search engine <sighs> right so I don't think that that's how necessarily how they what they're doing what they seem to be doing is indexing content not so that you can search like do a search like you would on Google with, uh, you know, for web pages or, or whatever, but actually taking the content from those pages and turning it into searchable content that is related to an app. Basically, it means that, so for instance, if you have a site that lists a bunch of recipes and you have an app for that site, what you can do is you can use um, standard markup from like, you know, proper schemas and stuff like that to mark up your, your recipe. And uh, that way, they can actually index that, show it as part of the search results on your you know, your spotlight search and uh, then open it up in the app without having to ever really you know go through through uh, Safari or anything like that, which is super cool. Yeah. It basically means that you can search for stuff, your content within your app without actually having to index the content yourself. So that's um, it, it is kind of Apple taking on Google, right? But not by trying to create an, a browser-based search engine, but avoiding the need to launch a browser at all. Right. If you search from iOS's sort of system-wide search and you can discover content that is distributed via the internet and viewable through apps on your device, you can get the content without having to ever visit a web page. Well, also, it's directly taken on Google because they announced the exact same feature at I.O. Yeah, there you go. Oh, right. Which is quite kind of funny. There's a few features that are duplicated between both keynotes. And I wonder, like, if they both knew... Probably. Yeah, maybe. I'm sure they have ways. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, this is this is super cool. And it builds on... So one of the things that they mentioned in the State of the Union was that it builds on things like Handoff. So both Handoff and the Search API, 
utilize something called NS user activity, which is a class that lets you essentially encapsulate a state that your app can be in. So part of the new stuff and that's kind of uh, that's powering this and powering uh, another feature, um, universal links, there's new additions to that class that allow you to do this, which is uh, kind of cool. Um, basically allowing to specify a set of content. And yeah, the, the other thing is universal links, which is kind of part of this whole thing as well. For the longest time, like, I mean, for ever since we've had apps, right, we've had URL schemes, right? They've been around for ages. Yeah, I think yep. I think so. So that would allow you to do things like you'd register a, a scheme. So, for example, GIF wrapped users, GIF wrapped. I mean, it's fairly straightforward. Um, and then you can basically pass that URL around and open up apps based on those schemas, which is kind of good. But also kind of bad because it meant that you know if if you wanted to send you know a, a link that opened up on in a web page on you know, your desktop or something, and then also have a a link that opened up in a uh, in your app on a, on a phone, you'd have to have two different links because you know gif wrapped uh, colon forward slash forward slash doesn't work. It doesn't work on on the desktop the same way. Um, especially mm-hmm. if you don't have an app there. What this actually allows you to do, universal links, basically means that you can register a domain that you support within your app. And you can actually specify that you support specific paths within that domain. Um, the, the example that they have on the website is, so Apple would have uh, developer.apple.com registered uh, for their, uh, I'm guessing this is the WWDC app because uh, then they have these paths, WWDC forward slash news and then videos slash WWDC slash 2015 as paths. And basically what it means is if anybody you know clicked that one of those links, uh, a link to like a you know a dub dub video uh, on developer.apple.com, uh, they get passed to the app uh, if they had it installed, as opposed to being passed to Safari, which is super cool. And it means yeah. that rather than getting passed out to Safari for you know handling uh, links when you click on them in in Twitter, you actually get taken to the apps. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Does it work like the Google one? So the way the Google one works is if you want to claim a URL, you have to put a file. At that URL, basically. Yeah. So they assume the owner of the URL owns the app, which makes sense. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that's uh, that's specified on on the site is that it's secure. You can't other apps can't steal the links uh, that you that you use. Basically, the way that it works is you put a file on your server, like you said, and um, that way the system knows that 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 URL belongs to this particular app. And then you specify within your entitlements file in your app which URLs you're actually supporting, which domains you're actually supporting. And it basically means that, for instance, Tweetbot can't hijack Twitter links in order to uh, pass you to their pass you to their app from you know Safari or, or whatever. Which is, I mean, there there are good things about that from a developer point of view. That's great because it means that you know you can get your URL and it belongs to you and it doesn't belong to anybody else. Which is which was a problem with you know URL schemes because anybody could you register a URL scheme and it didn't really matter. So all they had to do was you know support the same things as you know the main app and then they could uh, you know other other apps could kind of hijack that functionality. With this, you can't actually do that. It's not it's not possible. Possible. You know, from a consumer point of view, though, the fact, you know, if I want to use Tweetbot, Twitter links are still going to go out to 
you know the Safari or to the Twitter app. But regardless, um, I can't you know Tweetbot can't actually take those take those on, which is kind of so it's kind of a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. And I can see the benefits of both. Mm. But what can you do? It's certainly a really interesting idea, and I think in the past I sort of played with this idea of deep linking into apps with like there are kind of hacks you could do where you'd um, have a link that would take you to a website. And then on that website, you would um, display a message to the user to tell them about the native app that they might want to install and allow them to indicate whether they've already got it installed. And then if they do already have it installed, you'd set a cookie. And then subsequently, if you direct them to that site again, you'd read the cookie and I guess know that they had previously told you that they had the native app installed. And so then you'd redirect to the custom URL screen. So you'd kind of have to go through via Safari, but that end up in the native app potentially looking at the the appropriate bit of content. But it was yep. kind of convoluted, right? It relied on, you know, posing that question of the user. There was no way to actually automatically detect whether or not they already had the app installed. And, yeah, having to kind of go through Safari was, was a pain. So this is a much neater solution of being able to go straight into an appropriate sort of native app on the device. But um, I kind of, like, whenever I've tried to implement that stuff in the past, something I struggle with is that I don't tend to, design my app architecture such that you can just arbitrarily enter it at any point. And maybe that's a mistake on my part because more and more, I think there are good reasons to be able to arbitrarily go to any point within your app kind of on launch. But I think I I wonder whether this sort of um, API from Apple is going to bring with it any ways of making it easier to structure your app in that way to sort of have basically kind of, you know, URL, I guess, routes, routes, in your app that you've got kind of that hierarchical structure that mirrors the structure of the content on your website potentially and be able to jump straight to a particular view controller to show you a piece of content without necessarily having to navigate there through the kind of apps navigation hierarchy, if that makes sense. doesn't look like it. You just get the app delegate call with a you, what is it, something user activity? Yeah, NS user activity. And that's kind of the thing that it's all built around, see? So the difference between, you know, uh, the, the old school URL schemes and, and all this new stuff that's happening is that instead of getting essentially a an NS URL, uh, which, you know, you could, um, you could parse down kind of yourself and figure out where you were supposed to be going, what you end up getting handed is these NS user activities, which basically they do a lot of things and they it, it's um so that they're a a class that's being used in all of these new features so things like handoff use it uh this search api uses it uh the universal links they use it now uh, and basically um it's something that i guess you defined for the most part yourself because it seems like most of the new addition new additions are things like dictionaries in order to basically pass metadata back and forth yep that's my understanding understanding at a cursory glance but basically it means that if you structure your app to handle an ns user activity you can support all of these new features yeah so the other th- the next thing that I've got on my list of uh, of stuff to to look into is app thinning, and it kind of came up in a slide in the keynote, and then they kind of went into it in more detail in the State of the Union. It seems kind of like they understated it in the keynote, but it's actually quite a big deal, I think. Yeah, definitely another feature that's been on Android for a while, <laughs> and it's like a really obvious feature that you've probably thought about before. So instead of having to download assets for a Retina iPad or an iPad Air 2 onto your iPhone 4S, 
the App Store now supports having separate builds. So a 4S build, 5 build, a 64-bit build. It can split your app up into just what each phone actually needs. And that's pretty much it, to be honest. I mean, there's a huge amount of technical detail as to how they go into and split it, but it's from what I could tell, most of it is automatic. Yeah, well, I mean, so what what you end up doing is you submit your essentially your archive um, the same way that you kind of have previously. There is a little bit of stuff that you have to do if you want to if you want to be able to compile it for thirty two and sixty four bit um, because uh, that's opt in for for iOS or rather opt out because all of the new stuff kind of takes that on um, automatically. But basically. Yeah, like it it seems to happen f- pretty much all by itself. You just kind of you submit your you submit your build the same way that you already have previously and then it will actually do all the building kind of off of your computer. So it actually you're not actually compiling it for the particular devices. You're just kind of doing a pre-compilation. No, 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 no. So it's still definitely compiled. Yeah. So an archive is just a zip. Yeah. It just cuts up that zip into multiple zips. They, they refer to um, bit code instead of yeah. the union. So basically there there is a sort of intermediary, intermediary layer where yeah. the LLVM compiler is compiling it to a certain um, state and then they are actually doing further optimizations because they talked about the fact that um, that would allow them to basically re-optimize your app for for new devices as they come out um, without you having to oh, submit cool. updates again. Sounds absolutely crazy. I don't think I want that. I don't know if I want it either. It freaks me out. So, you, yeah, you do – you compile it to this intermediary sort of stage and then they do, yeah, the kind of final, you know, optimization for a particular processor architecture at the within the app store basically. Yeah, essentially. Um, which is weird. Okay. I missed that. Um, it is weird. And uh, – and the thing is, all of the uh, the watchOS apps, um, native apps for watchOS, it's mandatory. You have to implement it. You can't not implement it. And yeah, basically, it means that uh, you can now, sub- by doing it this way, you can actually do things like submitting uh, a 64-bit only uh, version of your application, or you can, you know, they they can do kind of things uh, after you've actually submitted it, you know, for for different devices and stuff like that, new devices as they come out. It is a little bit crazy, and presumably it also means that they can get better performance for all of the apps on the App Store if they come up with an optimization in their compiler. Yeah, if they're not dependent on developers to go and update our apps, they can sort of say we've made some major advances in the performance of our compiler for for watchOS we're gonna you know re-optimize all the apps just as a you know decision they make on their own nuts yeah it does seem nuts now we're gonna have a build run test cycle that includes an upload and a wait for Apple to optimize the app yeah that's crazy like imagine if it didn't work what would you do well I don't think that that's any worse than for instance when every now and then when the app store kind of goes down and people start installing apps that don't that you know crash on launch happened twice that I remember where just every app that is downloaded within a particular window it seems to crash for no particular reason true I don't necessarily think that it's any worse than that I mean obviously where they're not actually doing any compiling but they're already doing things like uh, re-signing the the uh, the app bundle before it goes out 
I, I don't necessarily think that this is any partic- particularly any worse than that. Um, it just, uh, you know, it, as long as they do it, do it correctly and are very um, smart about it, which I think, you know, I, I think they should probably already know that they need to be that, need to be smart about things. Who knows? The, the other bit of it um, that we should mention is that you can have extra content available that you distribute in this way. So not just um, separate from this kind of uh, what they were calling bit code, um, just going back to the graphic resources and things that your app uses. Yep. Like they talked about uh, levels for games being good candidates for this. So you might have the version of the, your app that people install uh, comes with the first few levels. Um, and then at some point when your app is ready for the additional content, it asks the app store for those resources and it's delivered to your app is available for your app to use. Um, and then after your app's finished with it, iOS can reclaim that space and delete that content again. So, you know, I suppose once you've finished those levels of the game, it might wipe that space until you, if you ever want to replay it. Yeah, so Android's been, forces you to do that for an app over 50 megabytes. And right. I hope they, Apple implements it better because it's a pain. Because you have to deal with things like, what if my resources only half downloaded and then are corrupt and... Like all those edge cases, they've put that on you. I mean, they provide That's ways terrible. to check it all, but you still have to do it. So let's hope it's better. And fif- better 50 meg isn't very big, right? No. So Apple Apple's limit is 100 meg these days, isn't it? I, I don't think they've changed it. I think so, yeah, for recently. cellular. So, and then, oh, yeah, that's right. So it's only for cellular, and then you can pretty much download any size that you want. I think the max is... Four by memory? Yeah, I think some some games are like a gigabyte, which is nuts. Like gigabyte is clearly way too much. Yeah, like that's huge, and especially for people whose you know devices only. And I think this is kind of key, right? So they 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 are still selling you know sixteen gigabyte devices, and then once you've got the OS on there, you're actually down to about eight gigabytes or you know maybe a little bit more than that and then you start putting on con like you put your content your photos your music uh podcasts to people do real people actually listen to podcasts i don't know and you know all of a sudden you have no space left and i think after last year's kind of debacle with people not updating to ios 8 because it just took up so much you know they had to get rid of a whole bunch of space and they didn't want to do things like delete their games and stuff like that this is a huge uh, a huge step forward yeah. in that in that regards because it means that the apps and the content that people are using don't necessarily need to be on the device in order to f- for the app to be yeah. there uh, and for all that data to still be there. Did they talk about whether this was going to allow you to separate things out like a WatchKit extension or Today View extension or um, keyboard or? Uh, they haven't talked about extensions in regards to it. I don't think. No, because it strikes me that like you know if say for example you don't own a Apple Watch. And you're downloading all of these apps that come bundled with WatchKit extensions. It would seem like a waste to download all of those WatchKit extensions until until you buy one, and then you might want to be able to download them sort of on the fly. And likewise for you know, if some apps might come with third party keyboards as an option, and if you don't actually want to enable it, it would seem silly for it to be sitting there in the bundle. Yeah, I I, I don't know. That might be that might come a little bit later. So for, I mean, to to clarify all of this uh, for people who are listening. Um, we're recording this on the Monday, well, Tuesday for me, but we're recording this all like very recently. We've we've watched the uh, the keynote and the the State of the Union, so uh, and you know looked through some documentation. But you know, so a lot of this stuff might be answered later on this week, and people listening to this might actually already know the answers. We don't at this stage, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with it. It's it's definitely something that's very 
in many ways really going to be very good, especially for consumers. Uh, it may mean, you know, it may ne- not necessarily be great for developers, but we'll, I guess we'll have to see. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, it's all about whether they can pull it off, right? Yeah. All right, so moving on. Uh, the next thing that was on my list is CloudKit. So we talked about you know backend services and stuff earlier on this year, and I think Jake, you're quite interested in CloudKit because I remember talk- you talking about it on the last episode, how you were interested in what was new, and there is something massive new. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this. So um, the the big new thing is CloudKit JS, which is a JavaScript library for interacting with CloudKit. So there'll be uh, web apps will be able to read and write data from. Um, iCloud looks like you better run some code in the cloud as well. It's, so the code bit is just the same bit we always had. So CloudKit's, in my opinion, well, a step in the right direction, still useless. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think, I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes because it's not like you can just write stuff on. It's not the same as what, um, like PARS have done, where you can actually write your own backend yeah. based on it. You still have to work within the kind of the way that CloudKit works. But CloudKit is kind of uh, architecture different. Like it's, it is, it is a different setup to what PARS is. Definitely. So the way in which that difference is negated for iOS apps is that although that you can't execute, like write your own code to run in the cloud, you can um, register for notifications when a particular query would return a different result. So you can basically say, fetch some data that matches this criteria and subscribe for notifications for when there's new data that that now matches the criteria. And you get a content available yeah. push notification when that happens. I wonder if the CloudKit JS library would let you do the same thing in JavaScript. Like, would you be able to have... You know, is it just going to be read-write to the iCloud key value store? Or will it also be, you know, be able to set up some sort of JavaScript callback thing for when new data is available, do something like event-based? So I would hope that it would be full-featured, right? Like, I mean, what's the point yeah. of introducing a JavaScript library if it if it's not ca- this, you know, as capable as the CloudKit uh, platform on iOS? Because if they if they're wanting to allow you to write web apps and potentially cross-platform apps based on CloudKit, then it seems odd that they would uh, they would inhibit it like that. I think cross-platform won't happen because you still need an Apple. ID and they provide no way of signing up for an Apple ID. Right. So the the reason that I kind of mention it is because um, the CloudKit website, which we'll throw in the show notes, um, mentions two things. Right. It mentions the CloudKit JS API and uh, the CloudKit Web Services API, and they separate they separate it out. And so basically, what Web Services seems to be is essentially a um, you know HTTP endpoints for you know accessing the data and, and writing the data back and forth. But as far as I can tell, there doesn't seem to be any limitation on you just have to use it for web apps um, there is the potential there that you could possibly build on it with with cross-platform stuff but i mean that could oh yeah you totally could you just have to they'd have to sign in with an apple id on android yeah that would just be the only thing but yeah it would work I, th- I think oh it's definitely got the potential to do it i mean if they if the web services are there to be able to make it to make it possible for the javascript library then there's no reason you know, and they've also you know made them opened them up, and so that you can actually uh, 
you can actually talk to them directly without having to talk through the JavaScript library, then there's no reason why you couldn't, you know, have a yeah, you know, in a cross-platform app or on a back end for a web service or something like that. It, it definitely, I think it definitely opens up some some potential for CloudKit far more than what we had last year. And considering that last year was definitely. quite a big thing, I think this is this is going to be another big step in the the right direction for it. Yeah, and I just had a quick look. It does have uh, notifications. There's a JS notification, which is the same as the, yeah, the equivalent of what's in available in Coco. There you go. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm hoping that it definitely, it definitely opens up some potential for, you know, backend stuff for, especially for simple apps, right? Because, I mean, part of the thing that was really great about the CloudKit being announced last year was that, you know, it, it meant that for an app that where a person didn't necessarily have a lot of backend, uh, you know, capabilities, they didn't know how to write, you know, stuff in other languages, they only had just, you know, started learning Swift and it's not really ideal for them to start learning Ruby or you know, PHP or something in order to make a, you know, a back a web service or a web version of the app possible. This definitely opens up a lot more potential because JavaScript is is quite a simple uh, is quite a simple language really, and is not dissimilar to to Swift. So it means that you could quite easily build something that's simple uh, without having to write a full you know set up a stand up a full backend or or anything like that. I just think the competitors are still better though. Uh, sure, the competitors are still better in a lot of the ways, but having this set up means that uh, you know people that are new to the platform can kind of get started without having to without having to look into all the competitors until they're actually fully ready. True, uh, I, I see it as a good thing in many respects, and I think that's probably one of the best ones is that having all of these these things uh, you know as part, as kind of first party uh, features of the of the platform is good because it means that they're they're there for people to use. So it means that people can kind of approach the platform completely new, have never kind of done development before. Okay, I want to write an app. Okay, it has to have a back-end stuff. Bam, CloudKit is right there. They don't have to learn uh, anything additional. But it means that opening stuff up like this makes means that it's uh, a, a lot better down the track for them. But also it means that they start to, it, it starts to kind of, uh, means that they will start to look into other things like PARS or Azure or things, you know, other things that are, are definitely, you know, better platforms in many ways. But uh, I think this still has benefits. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I can't tell whether Apple is serious about making a go of this. Like, are they so – when when they introduce sort of web stuff like this, there's a big part of me that's like, yeah, they're not serious. They're not actually – you know, like we've got um browser-based versions of the iWork apps, for example. But I yeah. don't think that – Anyone thinks they're a serious competitor to Google Docs. You know, it feels like a kind of tokenistic effort. It's like, um, yeah, we can do that too. That's available here. But I think Apple's like, but seriously, you're going to use the native ones, aren't you? And I, I kind of wonder if this is the same, if they're like, a, yeah, we're, we're, you know, you, you can do a web version of your thing, but you're not going to really. Everyone's going to use the iOS one, right? Yeah. I, and I mean, people do still use I, iCloud, the website. I mean, I use it every now and then. I, I think that maybe this this stuff has benefits outside of just iWork uh, and i mean they have things like uh their they have um you know find my iphone and stuff like that which is really useful on the on the website yeah you know I, maybe maybe not iWork and you know maybe those and really those aren't aren't 
you know, equivalent to Google Docs or anything like that. I can't really answer the the question of, you know, are Apple going to take this seriously? But, I mean, it's a step in the right direction. I, you have to give them that much at least. Definitely. And it's uh, something I'm really excited about. I'm definitely going to go to the sessions on it and look into it in more detail. So, But one of the things I think that is kind of important to, to note here is that Apple and Google kind of are focused on different areas of of platforms, right? They, Google is all about web services. So, of course, their Google Docs is going to be, you know, essentially core to their thing. Their web version of their, uh, I mean, they don't have a native version of, of Google Docs. It's only the web version. On the other hand, what Apple is trying to do for the most part is native stuff. Everything is about native apps it, and it shows quite a lot. You know, you look at the things like the search stuff that they've announced, the universal links that they've announced. It's all about directing people into apps and not into websites, especially on the phones and on the, yeah. on, you know, per, the portable devices. So CloudKit is kind of, I can't like it's hard to kind of say whether or not it's going to be a thing that is really going to go you know move leaps and bounds over the you know over I guess that's what I was getting at it feels like this is Apple's concession to the web okay we get it some of you are going to need to provide a web interface to your stuff so here's something that'll do whereas it feels a bit like uh, things like PaaS and Azure um, and other sort of platforms as a service are more you know fully embracing of the idea that the that there will be multiple platforms accessing the back-end service that there'll be web interfaces to it that like it's less treating it as a kind of necessary evil or something that you're gonna have to have a minimum example of and and maybe i'm being too cynical and you know i'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt and kind of take a watching brief on it but i there's part of me that doesn't want to rush in too fully because I, i worry that you know maybe it's the sort of thing that they could go in a year or two and just like it might not end up developing beyond this first version you know it might not become the fully featured thing that that it could be right i don't think that that's necessarily bad i i think that it's still got a lot of potential and i think it's still got a lot of even even in a very simplistic form it opens up a lot of possibilities that just weren't there previously which is awesome i think that that's an excellent thing and i'm gonna i'm uh, with that in mind i'm gonna you know I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, but as far as questions of you know its longevity, I don't think anybody can answer that. I, like I don't even yeah. think Apple possibly could answer that at this point in time. No, I'm I'm going to be hopeful like you, but cautiously hopeful. So the next thing on my list is uh, is Apple Watch because that's kind of a new big thing that came out of uh, out of the keynote and was kind of clarified a lot. I mean, they didn't really mention it much in the keynote, but they clarified it a lot in the in the State of the Union. They spent a good half an hour on it. They did. So some of the stuff that we get in the new WatchOS 2 is so I mean obviously we were expecting native apps to come and native apps have come we're, we're going to get Well hang on apps. when you say we were expecting there's no way I was expecting that this would be available now like is it available now can we download a beta we can Yeah 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 I was definitely I I could I could be updating my watch right now I don't know that you can update your that's terrible No you can beta today Yeah okay right that's phenomenal. I was not expecting that. Like, like I know there were rumors that, you know, and, and then there was almost confirmation that native apps were coming and they would be announced at Dub Dub. But I was still half anticipating it would be later this year. Here's a preview. We'll tell you about it. We'll describe it. Maybe you can start to run it in a simulator on your machine. The whole idea that we've got the OS, like we could install it 
I can't believe how fast they're moving with this. I mean, we saw it coming. They like it was essentially okay. They might as well have said that the, that native apps were coming, and everybody was expecting them to announce native apps. Oh, they confirmed before Dub Dub they were announcing native. They just didn't confirm when it was coming out. Yeah, right. Yeah, but they said there would be more details at Dub Dub. Yeah. It's just the pace, the pace of it which surprises me. Right. But technically, native apps aren't coming until, you know, full because yeah. that's when, you know, iOS 9 is coming. So technically, it's not, we're not actually getting them. But the beta is there. You can start building them. You can, you know, you can start building all of the bits and pieces for it. You know, so you get native apps. You can build them, and the way that they've done it is uh, is very. I think is very smart. Like they've basically mean means that you now move the the actual logic part, the the extension, the watch extension, directly to the you know to the watch, and so it sits there. And there's a you know a couple of new things for talking to your phone. So I had it. I had a few conversations in the kind of uh, in the lead up to this with some people about how, whether or not it was you know just talking directly to the internet was necessarily a good thing. One of the things that they've kind of made is so that you can actually talk to the phone directly without having to kind of go through you know go through a cloud service, which I think is excellent because it means that you still get the benefit of having you know content that's on your on the app on your phone uh, and being able to pass that directly to the to the watch and rather than having the watch have to go to the internet for everything. Yeah, it feels like it was done the way it should have been done the first time. Like it feels like the whole running app on a phone and presenting a screen was just a waste of time. And it almost makes, in my opinion, the watch feel like it was released prematurely. Well, I wonder if that's that's kind of a key to it, right? They... Like they announced that they were gonna and they were gonna release it with watch uh, watch kit extensions that run on your phone, and now it's essentially just moving it to the watch. Is that? Do you think that maybe it was just that the part of it that allowed it to run on the watch was just not ready? Because it doesn't seem like they've really added that much, other than the fact that yeah, now no. that it's there, it can access you know the hardware. Definitely, I think that's exactly right. And to the user's perspective, they don't know the difference. Like, it just seems weird. So it just seems like the watch is going to launch with these apps that were half-baked. And now it's going to get updated in the fall, which is all good. But I don't know. It just seems weird to me. I think that the only explanation for it is that they thought there would be a longer period between when the watch first came out and when native apps were going to be available. So I think maybe they thought the watch was going to be – maybe the watch was six months late and they thought there was going to be a whole year. And they felt maybe that whole year without apps – you know, it was a good stopgap measure for a year so that apps were possible at all. But the fact that it's going to be a matter of months, it does seem weird that we've kind of got a device launch with sort of one mode of, of use of apps that you got to try and explain to people or people have got to try and understand and then it completely changes a few months later. And yeah, it does seem a bit odd that it's come about this way, but um, it seems like we're going to end up in a good good spot where the apps are going to work better because i had assumed that you would kind of have to choose you know oh this app's definitely more suited to a native glance or something but the other style of app is more suited in this case but it's almost like the running on the phone style is gone now that doesn't exist anymore you upgrade they're all native right so that was my expectation right i i had expected that you would write you would write an app for the watch you know the native apps for the watch you would write basically the same way that you wrote an app for an iphone like you just wrote it it had a you know it it was basically just an app like an iphone app Uh, but it really isn't it's just essentially still an extension of the app on your phone it's just that now the logic the extension the you know the bit that actually does all the work doesn't live on the phone anymore it just that's all they've shifted they've just shifted that 
so I, I think it's maybe I, I think it just was that they they didn't have everything ready, and so they you know they needed to, or maybe they, I mean they pre-announced it that way. It's it's a very it is very odd. I don't I don't necessarily understand how why they they thought it was a good idea. Yeah, I'm not going to try and understand. I'm happy to just deal with the reality we've got, which is uh, an improvement on what we've had in the past. Right. So the other thing that's kind of cool, and I'm very I, I'm somewhat uh, glad that we're getting, is that you can uh, you can build complications for your watch app as well. That's so cool. How did they get that name? <laughs> it's such a weird name. Complications. Well, that's what they're called on a on an actual watch. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. It just seems like I'm going to build some complications into my app because that's a great <laughs> idea. My app is too simple. Right. Needs to be more complicated. So what they did with the what they did with the watch is that they took all the naming conventions from regular watches. So things like the crown, which, you know, seems like a really yep. weird name. That's what it's called on a watch for whatever reason. I got that one. I just, yeah, didn't know the didn't know the complication word it's essentially when you add something that complicates you know your watch so you know you have yeah. you know a barometer or something that's a complication apparently but you can now create complications which run on the display of your you know your, your uh, face of your um, watch and the way that they do it is interesting it, it prefetches all of the content in a timeline as much as possible so for things like uh, as an example for weather if you're building if if you're building a weather app, uh, and this is something that they kind of talked about in the State of the Union, like you're going to have something that's relatively predictable, and you've got also got uh, content that you know can go out into the future. Um, so you can actually kind of provide all of that content uh, as essentially like a list, a timeline of data. And uh, that way, it also allows you to use the new feature, what is it called, time travel, to you know, scroll backwards and forwards through time. So I think that's such a clever idea. Um, and I, of course, I think weather is a great example for it. But I think there's lots of examples for it. Like um, there's lots of information where time is important, where it varies over time, both into the future and into the past. So things like um, events, like the, if you think about the complications that Apple currently ship, um, things like your calendar. Obviously, you you do have a timeline of stuff that's going to happen later today, the stuff that already happened earlier today. I, I think there's a lot of examples where that timeline thing makes sense. The one example we saw in State of the Union, which I thought was not intuitive to me initially, you know, immediately, was um the charge level of uh, the electric car, right? Seeing there was a complication that showed yeah. what the charge level of um, the car was. And yep. you could wind, use time travel to go forward to see what will it be charged in three hours time. And I guess that does make sense, right? Because you know it's still plugged in right. and you know how long it takes to charge. And so you could anticipate, you could wind your clock forward to later that afternoon and go, you know, what temperature is it, is it going to be when I go to the beach? And will my electric car have enough charge so that I can drive? Yes. Yeah. That's kind of cool. It is cool. And so the other thing uh, that also, like, so not everything is is kind of predictable like that. Well, the example that they used in the State of the Union was um, like a, a game of basketball or baseball or something like that. I don't know. It was some kind yeah. of sports and, ball. And stock prices. They said that stock prices are also not predictable. Yeah. So what they what you can do is you can also push. Uh, you, there's a special type of push notification that basically sends the data straight through to the watch extension uh, and allows you to, as in this particular example, it had scores coming, coming in. So the scores were updated uh, immediately. And uh, as a bonus, that is also uh, you know sub- capable of being support like supporting time travel. 
So uh, if you have like you know, they had a complication on the on the um, watch that showed the scores, and if you travelled through time backwards, yeah, only back in time, right? You can't find out how the game is going to end. Well, you could try, but that would be that would be <laughs> the the first type of uh, of uh, content type, which is the scheduled, uh, you know, the predicted, you know, uh, predictable scheduled updates thing. Yeah, no, I thought I thought it was a really clever design to the to the problem of you don't want to be requesting this data when someone raises their wrist because you want it to be ready. Like, you know, you've only got a few seconds that the screen's lit up. You right. want it to already be ready. And it's a night I'm, I'm glad that they thought it through rather than leaving it for each developer to think through. Well, I just want to give a shout out to Pebble, There's who Apple have directly copied this from. Right. And to be honest, did it a lot better. So that's a shame. So Pebble Time, they're like so proud of this feature, they put it in the name. I mean, they didn't call it time travel, but yeah, it's the same thing. You wind through your day, back or forwards, and it shows you the relevant information for that time in the future or past. Uh, but Apple did it better. <laughs> but does it show stock prices? Do they show stock prices in the future? No, Pebble oh. couldn't crack that one either. Yeah, somebody's got to crack it. <laughs> So the other thing that I wanted and was kind of hoping that maybe they would do this time around was uh, watch faces. I really want to be able to develop my own watch faces. Yeah, that's quite a surprising one. It doesn't surprise me. The only thing that surprised me is they let they actually going to let you do photo watch faces. Oh god! Like I'm I'm not surprised that Apple want to maintain control over how their devices look because although we've bought them, Apple still see them as their devices and they want their devices to look a certain yeah. way. They don't want us messing them up with our poor taste in watch faces. Poor taste in watch faces. Have you seen the Have you seen the digital watch faces on this friggin' thing? Yeah, I'm oh. going to say their taste is pretty poor. Their taste is so <laughs> I don't bad. Really like the watch faces. Why can't you just have one with a clock centered in it? Yeah, I just but want a clock. <laughs> I, I want a digital clock. You can have. So they have these two like infinitely customizable analog faces which are great if you like to read time with an analog face. Not so great if you're like me and can't read an analog face. I can't read time oh, no. on an analog watch. So I am stuck. I am literally, because if, if I put one on, I have to sit there for longer than it takes, you know, longer than the screen stays lit up for in order to figure out the time. One of the faces that they have has numbers all around it, has like the seconds and minutes marked out, so all the way up to 60 as well as the hours, which is somewhat helpful. But, you know, I still have to sit there and actually think about it for a minute, whereas if I have a digital face, I can just see it. The problem with the digital faces is that most of the digital faces, including the two that they announced today, are this white text, and they looked horrible because they were all on, like, white or light-coloured backgrounds, like skies and stuff. So it's really hard to see if you're, like, walking out in the sun or something crazy like that. Like, why would you do that? I don't know. You know, so you are, you can either have those, which there are several of them, and none of them support complications, which are, like, a major feature of the watch, or you can have the modular face, which has, again, the, the time is really small, but fortunately uh, somewhat more readable, but is very busy. Or you can have the extra large, which, as it says, is extra large. It's huge and also doesn't support complications. So you can either have something that is difficult to see, something that is really complex, or something that is really basic. There is nothing in between, whereas the analog faces that they have kind of cover all all of those extremes, including the like the middle bit where you can have something that's really simple and and nice to look at, I just just it gets me really angry. 
<laughs> I can tell. I, I'm just for the record. I'm not defending Apple here. I'm just. Uh, I think I, I understand how they work now, which is that they like they want their vision for how the product looks to have some time to sort of get to to set people's expectations and to get some sort of consistency around how people view their products. And then once that's happened, they allow for more customizations. I think like that's how it's been in the past. So I reckon maybe next year you will get maybe down the track, but I think it's it's all to you. They really do want like it's infinitely customizable. So long as you pick from one of their customizations that they've sort of pre-vetted as being in keeping with their vision for the product. The the photos surprised me because I thought that would be too sort of uh, crazy and out there and out of their control. But I'm kind of glad. I think it's neat. I wish it was more customizable too. So angry. <laughs> can't have any complications on that. Like I can't have a complication that shows a timer for when uh, and a digital face for when I'm you know cooking or whatever. If I want to do that, I have to go to I have to go back to the um to the modular which is also like ridiculously complex like there's so so many different things and you can you can only have the time up in the corner and something you know completely and utterly different and not time related in the center you can't move the time to the middle all i want is the time in the middle that's all i want really that's all i want (sighs) all right Maybe this will be incentive for you to start a jailbreak community for the Apple Watch. Yeah, I, I, it may end up me being that I jailbreak the watch, but we'll see. So moving on, we need to move on because we're we're running so over time, and you're supposed to be you know tired, Jake, tired. I, I am. I'm I'm exhausted. Um, do you know what else is tired? Um, my the the battery on my laptop, which I can't charge, whilst also having a microphone plugged in. <laughs> Oh dear. Because it only has one port. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you ended up buying one of those friggin' things, did you? It's a thing of beauty. A thing of it beauty yeah, with uh-huh. 3% um, battery left. What? 3%? Oh, no. You're not going to get to Let's talk move, about Swift. because we're getting to the good stuff. Oh, God. This is where all the stuff happens. <laughs> So the next thing in my list is Xcode 7, and there's been a whole bunch of stuff added to Xcode, uh, which allows for this, uh, allows for a lot of new stuff. And uh, so the first one of the one of the first things that they've done is implemented is added something called a stack view. Woo! Woo! <laughs> this is the most exciting one. <laughs> so you're very excited about it, but it really isn't. It just like the views from WatchKit. Is that not exactly the same? thing yeah, yeah and yeah, they're it awesome is. okay and they they are this awesome. is as big so of a cool. collection view claim came out okay android has had this stack view they call it a linear layout they've had it since i think android one and it's like the major reason why i think laying out on android is so much easier than auto layout and now we've got it on ios it's just like the big thing you have to realize is that they can be nested. I think a lot of people yeah, don't. And, and you can nest see that horizontal in their ones head. In, in vertical ones and vertical ones in horizontal exactly. ones. Exactly. And you can do so much with it. Okay. Like, that is hard at the moment. Like, you either pin up some crazy auto layout thing, and then the best part about that is they show... So, if you did that with auto layout, you'd be like, that's great. And then your designer comes along and goes, can we move that one up the top? And you're like, "Ah oh, man, reset constraints. <laughs> Give me two days. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yeah. Fair enough. All right. So, that's that's huge. And the other one was you could do a custom collection view layout, and that's just, like, pain. Yeah, that is a pain. So, yeah. Something that I've not been interested in implementing because in code it's really hard to do collection view layouts. Exactly, stack views. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> I'm glad that you're excited about that because I, I I just looked at it and I was like, okay, 
Cool. Um, all right. Next thing: storyboard references. So one of the things that storyboards Ooh, has been added to about storyboards time. is the ability. I'm trying to go very fast because you're running out of battery. <laughs> I, can, I can tell. This, this is good. I'll, I'll get to go to sleep as well. <laughs> one of the things about uh, that that has been added to storyboards is the ability to essentially uh, kind of add storyboards to storyboards, and so you can kind of build like a proper modular structure of storyboards. Uh, that allow you to have you know specific parts of your app in a storyboard and then referenced by another storyboard without having to do all that sort of stuff in code, um, which is kind of cool. Yeah, so much better. That is really nice. I mean, it's an obvious change. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that is kind of obvious, right? I I'm not it wrong is. in thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, it was like this is how it should have been always from the beginning. So. Fantastic, but yay, about time. Actually, the the other thing that they announced about storyboards, um, which is kind of I don't have in my list. I'm, ve- I'm veering away from the list. Uh, I don't have in my list, but is is something that they did mention uh, in kind of alongside this is that storyboards are kind of going to be uh, able to do a lot of the more of the stuff. I guess probably part of because of um, Metal being available now on OS ten, but. Uh, Storyboards are going to be able to kind of render more like what you're actually going to see in an app so that a lot of the kind of limitations are are going away from storyboards. Blur and the vibrancy was the main one. Yep. And when if you couple that with IB designables as well, I think that um, we will will be able to get to a point where storyboards look a lot like your running app, and I think that's cool. So this is going to blow your mind, Jake. I think we're at a point. You're, you're, you're going to use storyboards. I think we're at a point with storyboards that I may actually, I'm actually considering going in and redoing the visual stuff in GIF wrapped with storyboards. Wow. wow! 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 Is this because you always say you prefer to use maths over auto layout, but now with these, basically, can be any size view with that whole multitasking thing. Like you pretty much have to use auto layout these days, right? So. Auto layout ha- brings a lot of benefits, but auto layout is also very difficult to do in code, like really difficult because you have to figure yeah. out all the constraints without any sort of real feedback. And I tried it the other day with something very simple and it just, just was not, it was just didn't really work for me. All I was trying to do was yeah, this- like center a thing and it just did not want to work for me. Because uh, you have to figure out everything. Yeah, and the editor in Interface Builder is getting so much better. So go on, do it. We're we're at a point now where storyboards are able to kind of uh, visualize your app in a fairly close to finished state, which is something that it hasn't been able to do and has stopped me from using them up until now because it's just previously it's been that uh, so up until last year you couldn't like you'd just have boxes and boxes of white views that just didn't have any kind of direct relation to your actual co- the the actual app, app that you were building uh last year they announced they brought in ib designables and the other thing which i've yep. forgotten which is also ib something uh and that kind of made things a lot better but still it just wasn't quite there and this year i think they've really kind of gotten it to a point and it's just it's it's almost like this year it's just you know it's that that butterfly that lands that just lands and just throws everything you know, over the edge. I have my uh, final battery warning. I'm oh, about God. to go away. Because <laughs> we're nearly there. We're nearly there. Okay, so we've lost Jake. Those freak, those freaking laptops, I swear. Uh. <laughs> and he didn't even think to, like, you know, get one of the 
adapter things that let you plug in power and also oh what a yeah that seems like very short-sighted anyway um uh what was i up to we'll just we'll just say uh we were just talking about you were going to say storyboards are good so that point's finished finished the episode and then we've got testing pretty much just testing and that's it then we're done there's kind of two parts to the testing stuff in in xcode in new xcode right there's ui testing and there's code coverage but the ui testing is kind of cool yeah, so I'm so excited for the UI testing and I hope it works as well as advertised because they made a lot of mention of like you run it with bots and yeah. I'm just hoping it also runs with, you know, every other because hardly anyone actually uses bots, including Stripey Sock. Yeah. So it better run from the terminal with Xcode build is all I can say. But it looks well, it looks awesome. I love that it's built in now. It seems so one of the things that it seems to be built on is UI automation, right? Which was a which was a um a profile thing that you could do and you could provide some you could basically write this ui automation stuff in javascript which and this looks very similar just it's not instead of being in in javascript because why is it in javascript instead of being in javascript uh it's in the native language so it's either in swift or it's in objective c depending on what you're using uh which is awesome because yeah javascript was uh, the fact that you had to use javascript was nonsense and it was made it just everything a lot more difficult yeah so it's it's just kif basically so it's the it's the ui testing framework kif has become first party i mean it isn't kif Kif still is definitely a separate thing, but they've just made an Apple Kif. Yeah, is the thing. Well, and I mean, it's and again, it's it is very. It's basically UI automation. So I, I'm guessing that it's probably UI automation just in native languages as opposed to in JavaScript and having to be run as part of a yeah, profile. Maybe. Um, but it means that and now, a really cool thing was the the record button. Did you see that? Yeah. I wasn't expecting that at all. So you could do that with UI autom- automation. Um, it was it was terrible. Um, it was really terrible in UI automation. So it would write, it would write the code for you, but you couldn't really, it didn't have any smarts about what it was writing. Whereas this one seems to be really smart. Like it's actually yeah, really can, clever. Like, go back and refactor basically. Yeah. It's like, it's, I mean, it's essentially a, like a, having a developer that works just based on what you're actually uh, doing with an app. Um, but it basically means that you can kind of write these tests really simply just by using the app and uh, and then just run them over and over and over again. Uh, and the code, like the code that they showed made a lot of sense. Um, it wasn't complex or it, and it didn't have things like um, one of the problems that was when you recorded, uh, recorded with UI automation, you got this kind of effect where your code would say things like, um, you know, get the view at index zero, uh, get the sub view at index three click and it didn't ma- ma- make any sense whereas this actually pulls things that make sense and it actually kind of it uses um it uses the accessibility stuff to create variables and all that sort of stuff so you can write yeah, really like smart Kif. yeah you can write really smart um uh tests which is awesome yeah it looks great so hopefully it turns out as good as they showed i saw at least on twitter there was a bit of a skepticism at how good the recording really was yeah but it looked awesome to me so it basically was you record to get to the place in the app where you actually wanted to test something uh and then you in your test you write the bit that you actually want to check and then you record back out again hooray 
looks so simple. Yeah, so I, I, I think it looked really great. And the thing is, is that so um, in a previous episode, I've talked about how I use UI automation to generate my screenshots from my apps uh, for, yeah. for wrapped and stuff. Uh, this might potentially make it a lot easier because you can essentially write code now uh, in within your app or include a library that uh, takes you know that generates screenshots for you, and then. Definitely, I'd say that is a hundred percent possible. Yeah, so it just and it's as easy as writing a test, which is great. It's just that's super awesome. I'm I'm totally into that because yeah, the last uh, UI automation getting that to happen is is not easy. Yeah, this is a hundred percent better than UI automation. Let me just point that out. One hundred percent better, possibly even five hundred percent. And I don't even think that's a real thing. <laughs> no, that means five five times better. Yeah, I agree. Go. I'd say yeah, definitely more than a hundred. So the other thing that kind of comes along with uh, with UI testing is code coverage. Also really cool. And so they kind of hinted that they were doing code coverage. And I was like, uh-oh, because I was really worried they were just all going to come up as warnings or something, like warning method not tested. Yeah. And I wouldn't be able to deal with that. Like that would drive me insane. Yeah. <laughs> so luckily it looks separate. Well, it is kind of separate, but it also is kind of not, right? Because they have, so they have yeah. a thing where it lets you see coverage in kind of a list view of all of your different bits and pieces and what's test and what's not so that you can kind of get a general overview of, okay, well, all of, you know, I'm 60% tested and that's awesome. Um, but the other thing that they've got is that it changes the color of the text editor when you're in, like when you're tested. That's only when you come back in. Ah. Yeah, thankfully, we don't have to deal with a whole pile of highlighting all over the, yeah, that the was editor, gonna... just in the normal view. Okay, so that, that, that worried crazy. me. <laughs> yeah, that was, I was thinking, like, my my pages are all just going to be like this weird red color because nothing is tested in Gifrapt. Like, I don't have any tests written for it, so it's all going to be red. Yeah, can and, you imagine like, upgrading an old project that didn't have tests, like a massive project? You, it yeah. would make Xcode unusable. So I think they actually did take that into account. Yeah, so I think that that makes sense. So it's a, it's a tool. It's not like a forcing you into it. It's just encouraging you. Yeah. Here's another thing you can gamify and make go up. Yeah, Like a measure of how sense. good your code is. So I'm I'm excited about that. Yeah, Xcode 7 was it looks like a good release. Hmm. All right. Well, okay, Swift. So it's a pity that Jake isn't here for this because this is like the thing that I expected him to want to talk this is to his us. Topic. Yeah, he wanted yeah. to talk to us for hours on this. I'm sure, and I'm sure he will eventually. Yeah, let's. <laughs> I, I guess let's you know let's allow let, let's touch on the highlights and then we'll we'll you know touch on it in a more deeper deeper way in an upcoming episode. How about that? Yeah, sounds good. All right, so key points: Swift. Swift is at two point so there's yeah. a whole bunch of uh, there's a whole bunch of kind of additions, I guess. I don't really know anything about it. I didn't look at it because I expected Jake to actually tell us all about it. <laughs> oh, I know, I know about it. It's all good. So there's a a lot of the bits of the language have been cleaned up. Uh, so there's some really cool stuff like guard. So a, a strategy a lot of people were using to deal with optionals was they were checking them all at the start of their method, and if one of them or one of the required ones wasn't there, they would return early, like early exit. Yep. And so they would have this, either they would say, if let, blah, 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 and then the whole method would be indented, which kind of looked gross. Or they would say, if x is equal to null, return. Um, so they've added some syntactic sugar to try and make that better. So you've now got a guard keyword that allows you to do that early exit, but sort of in line. Yeah. So it just cleans it up. That's all it does. Uh, another one is they've implemented an entire 
er- new error handling system, which uses try-catch, which has definitely not gone down well on Twitter. So there was a lot of talk that people were expecting what's called a result type, which I've only know the basics about. But from what I've seen in talks at Swift London is a really good way to handle errors yeah, because it just makes the error like any other value type and you can pass it around and you can do ifs on it and do whatever you want to it. But they didn't do that. They've gone with the sort of try-catch method, which everyone screams out about Java. So that was interesting. I don't know. So I like looking at that. I think that opened up a lot of possibilities, like the fact that they could mark classes and methods as being particular to a certain OS and is like OS version. Is that? Oh, that's a different keyword. That's availability. Oh, that, oh okay. Is that that's they might so, they yeah, mentioned that's a great it all at the same time. They did. They kind of went through it. So yeah, there's also availability now. So there's a nice wrapped way to say if iOS eight do this. It's the other way. It's a nice way to mark up your APIs as saying, this is available on iOS 8. This is available on iOS 9. Right, because um, you're using... And I think there was a way to break. I can't remember. So they had three levels of it, right? Because um, if you were ha- if you had like a thing where you just wanted to do one thing differently if it was on a different system, I guess. Um, yeah, that's could, right. You could did. kind of so- do it in line. It was like if available iOS or, you know, method or whatever, it was kind of like that. It was very kind of internal um, inside of the method. And so you could, you know, call that thing if it was available. Um, but then you had uh, things that you could like essentially um, metadata for, for classes and uh, for methods that let you specify, okay, if uh, you know, this is this class, this method is available only on iOS nine, uh, and yeah. it that, so it means that you can kind of write a, you could technically write a view controller kind of that's specific for you know new versions, and then have uh, have an older view controller for previous versions or something. So like does that. it automatically switch it out, or are they just compiler warnings? Because I mean, <sighs> we have that in Objective C. Yeah, I I feel like they may be just compiler warnings. I it's hard to really tell. Um, I mean they didn't yeah. they didn't go into a lot of that sort of stuff, and I honestly wasn't paying a lot of attention. But they they you know it, it seems like it seems like there are possibilities there outside of just compiler warnings. So I don't know. Um, and I mean the obviously the biggest change is Swift is going open source. So I totally saw that coming. Really? Yeah. So. To be honest, I thought it was already going open source. I remember reading a thing last year saying they expected to open source it. The bit that I didn't see coming was the bit where they're actually going to accept pull requests, basically. Right. I thought it would be like open source, like Android is open source, where every time they do a major release, they put the source code online because they're so nice and it's open source. But really, it's not. It's just they give you the source code. I thought it was going to be like that. Well, and even and even then, like uh, Android is not, it's not all of Android. It's just... Uh, you know the kind of core bits, and then all of that's the right. So they don't give you the Google bits. Open. But this is like the language; it's got the core, the framework, core frameworks. Obviously, it's not Cocoa, but it's quite a big, it's yeah, quite the a standard big chunk. library. Well, it's the Swift standard library, so that's a really cool thing. Like map, filter, reduce, all those functions will be open source. And I mean, of as as a benefit to this, like there are because they're uh, taking uh, taking contributions. It's something that. Uh, like the the community is going to build uh, even more so than it has previously, which is, I mean, that's outstanding. I I'm really glad that this is something that they've done. Um, it's it's kind of exciting, and I mean, it's I might even start using Swift earlier than I expected to as well. This is this dub dub has changed the way that I'm going to be doing development, even as near as like tomorrow. 
Well, one thing I've noticed is every presentation or every bit of code we've seen so far is in Swift. Yeah. So I think they're really, they're really kind of obviously, uh, they're, they're taking it to heart. Like they're taking this Swift thing, obviously. I mean, ever since it, it, it appeared last year, like it was obvious that eventually Objective C was going to be gone. I still think it's going to be around for a while. I mean, we just got generics in Objective C. I know. We got a new language crazy. feature. Yeah, like a big language feature. Yeah, that's huge. But the thing is, is it's definitely going away. You just have. I mean, you look at the way that they're treating it. I mean, they are going to have. Like, obviously, the, all the documentation has still has. Uh, you know, things that have uh, Objective C like lines and stuff in it. But I mean, playgrounds are still Swift only, and that's a huge thing that we didn't really get into with with the Xcode thing. Um, you know, and that's I mean that's huge. The, a lot of the presentations are now using Swift as the language. Uh, you know, I I I'm guessing that probably all of them are going to. I didn't see any Objective C other than the fact that other than the announcement that they have uh, generics, which was a you know part of the Swift <laughs> announcement. Like, I didn't see anything about Objective-C other than that one thing. Yeah, they seem to have added it to Objective-C in order to make Swift better. Yeah. It's kind of funny. So, it's just, well, it's it's just so that they can, you know, they can kind of move Coco forward into being, you know, more Swift, uh, yeah. you know, more Swiftified. But, you know, it's it seems like that's kind of the level of, you know, their, their uh, dedication to Objective-C now. But Swift going forward, it's it's the language. So the other thing that was really kind of uh, kind of crazy, and I did definitely did not see this coming, but we did talk about it at one point. I remember having conversations yeah. about it. It's not only is it going open source, but they're actually creating it for Linux. Yeah, like, I didn't see that coming. I figured someone would do it, but I didn't think Apple would do it. Yeah, no, Apple are doing it. And the thing is, is that like Linux, right? That That's what 90% of web servers run on. Yeah, so this is it. Server-side Swift. Server-side Swift. It's, it's something that could actually happen. It's definitely going to happen. Someone will write a framework like to make it real nice, and it'll just be, yeah, it'll be good. It'll be normal. And so now technically you could write, like, you know, not even using CloudKit, you could write your whole yeah, architecture out, using the Kit. one. Yeah, you know, you could write your whole write your whole architecture using Swift, and you know, Azure could could uh, could support it, and other you know pl- platforms like Pars could support it, and you could write your own web server if that's the sort of thing that you like to do. It's the sort of thing I like yeah. to do still, but you know, it it's just, it's definitely a thing to move forward, and so yeah, I'm I'm glad that I didn't give up PHP up until now because I'm probably going to end up writing it, writing stuff in Swift for for, for web services which is awesome. I'm very excited about that. Me too. And that's probably, I mean, there's definitely more syntactic sugar stuff, but that stuff's easier to read than to hear about on a podcast. So right. I think we just leave it there. And there's so much There's so much more that we didn't cover because we didn't cover any of the new, you know, the new frameworks and game stuff and all that sort of stuff. Um, all of the stuff that we've kind of gotten is available on the, webs, on the websites. We'll throw all of that into our show notes. They are at mobilecouch.co forward slash 59. If you want to get in touch with us and tell us about the things that you loved about this, uh, about this thing, uh, about this, uh, you know, uh, keynote in the State of the Union, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us, send us an email to hello at mobilecouch.co or you can jump on the website mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Now, if you would like to uh, get in touch with us individually, we're on Twitter. Jake is at... J McMullen, that's J M A C M U L L I N. Ben is Ben Trangrove, that's B E N T R E N G R O V E, and I am Jelly Bean Soup. 
Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you again, again, to our Patreon, Patreon patrons. That is a mouthful. We are so glad to have your support. We are so glad that you guys have tuned in to listen. We look forward to talking to you again in two more weeks' time. We will see you then. Goodbye. Bye.